Welcome to Swanglinese, the only podcast talking the language of business here in the Middle East. Your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Andermo, give you their own insights, as well as interviewing business leaders in the region to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Barry, Oscar, let's talk Swanglinese. Just before we get started, a quick word from one of our sponsors. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Cobabble. Cobabble is a technology platform that aims to help you digitize and digitalize your business. Simple to use, massively powerful, and guaranteed to bring your paper-based archaic processes into the digital age. Cobabble leverages the smart device technology already in your employees' hands to help streamline processes, share information, as well as educate and train your workforce. Whether you have paper-based checklists, forms, or audits that need digitizing, are looking for a better way to communicate with your teams, need to train them on the go, or are looking to replace your existing system with one that is far more cost-effective, Cobabble is the tool for you. Check out cobabble.com for more information, to request a demo, or sign up for your free trial. Cobabble, your digitization partner. Okay, and let's get on with it. Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode of Swanglinese. In the virtual studio this week, I have the pleasure of Martin joining me. Hi, Martin. How are you? I'm very good, Barry. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us on the uh, the podcast. I'm really interested in speaking with you today based on what you're doing right now. But I also, uh, for all of our listeners, we like to start by rolling the timeline back a little bit and just uh, telling people a little bit about yourself, Martin, introducing yourself and uh, where did it all start from a professional perspective, some of your experiences along the way, and then bring us up to, to date today in uh, 2022 and what you're doing now. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm getting quite old, so I, I won't I extend too much on details. <laughs> but uh, as you will have guessed already, Max, I'm French. Uh, so, uh, 41 years old, uh, born and raised in France. Uh, studied at uh, HEC, which is a business school in France. Then I spent uh, seven years working for the Boston Consulting Group. Uh, had right. a small uh, small adventure for one year in a biotechnology company, but it was a big failure. Came back to BCG and I uh, was quite adventurous. So I moved uh, from BCG in Paris to BCG in Morocco to start our operations there. Um, and I had this idea of starting a business. And then after one year in Morocco, I identified that idea of starting uh, Informanio. And I started, then I started developing the company out of Morocco. And then as we expanded new countries, we wanted to find a place where I could base my holding and, and develop new entities and so on. And the UE seemed uh, very good. So seven years ago, I moved to Dubai, uh, where I've been uh, since then, um, uh, except for a period of six months during COVID, where I was blocked uh, <laughs> abroad uh, in, uh, in, the, in the longest one-week uh, vacation I've ever took. Um, and uh, and, uh, and uh, since then, I've been in Dubai, and uh, that's on the professional side. So I have been for my new running for the last 10 years. Last year, I started a second business called Data Exchange. We can expand on that later on, if you wish. And yep. on the personal front, uh, I'm married, uh, the happy father of Three kids, 10, 7, 4 years old, and my wife is also an entrepreneur. So there's a lot of entrepreneurship going on in the family. Quite a lot of companies being run uh, out, of, uh, out of Dubai. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And thank you for that very, very quick roundup. So I'm going to go right back to the first thing that caught my attention there, which of course is the initial failure um, from an entrepreneurial perspective. It's always something to to learn from, I think, in, in terms of the uh, the actionable. So can you tell us a little bit about that in terms of um, how, how it happened, the, the, the kind of company, the idea, and, and why did it end up being a failure in, in your mind? Yeah, actually, I was not 
the entrepreneur. I joined a startup uh, okay. at that time. So basically, uh, I was at BCG and I felt uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, we were all the same. So on. I wanted to make more of a difference and have that adventure of a company developing uh, cancer treatment. And it was a startup and it was really exciting to, to participate in something like that. And what I was too naive to understand was that the culture of the company, the personality of the people you work with is critical. In that case, the CEO was a madman, but literally, I mean, the guy now has is, is on trial for uh, wow. for fraud on clinical trials, fraud on tax, and whatever. It's it's uh, so after uh, ten months in the company, I realized it would never work. I was right hand to the CEO, and I realized how important it was to work with people you get along with. I mean, you spend more time with your coworkers than you spend with your family, and and so on. And I felt that it was, and and also from an ethical perspective, I don't it didn't want to be involved in a, in a business that was so unethical. So I, I knocked back the tour at VCG and they were kind enough to take me back. So that was a short adventure, but I really realized the importance of the people beyond just the fact that it's an exciting project. Um, and that, that, that was really critical. Yeah, yeah. No, a very good point there. I think that for a lot of our listeners is that the the people you work with or the people you choose to go into business with, it's a such a critical decision. Uh, and it's one that has to be made early on a lot of the time. And, uh, and sometimes it's um, it's a difficult one <laughs> and uh, and the decision can come back to bite you. But uh, it is, it's also, I think, the ability to say, you know what, I don't want to be a part of this and get out. <laughs> I think that's something that we have to understand too. But um, you, you obviously did a lot of uh, time and work with uh, Boston Consulting and a lot of people look and say, well, you know, that's a secure job and a great company to work for. Why would you then think, you know what, I think I'm going to go and do something on my own. What was, what was it within you that made that something that you wanted to ha happen? Um, it's a very good question. So uh, there's two elements. One is I have zero aversion to risk. I'm, I'm, I'm not in you know, multiple ways. Uh, you know, we discussed earlier that if we played rugby, both of us, and it's a risky thing. Why would you ever play rugby and get hit by others that are twice your weight and, and so on? And I would take adventures and so on. So the element of risk was for me not a all the problem quite quite the contrary and and, and the story uh, follows I, I, my, my dream is not to be a businessman my dream is to potentially and we'll see one day to go into politics and i want to go right. into politics not making it a job but i want to go into politics as like a passion or something i want to do meaning that i don't need to make money off politics because that's mm. the, the the root of the root of all evil uh, so basically to do that you needed to secure enough cash enough money so that you did not need to work or to do politics for a living so mm. i was like okay if i want to do that what what is the best way that i can fairly quickly make enough money and uh, entrepreneurship seems to be a good a good way to do this and it corresponds to my character as well so it was like okay um to do to be an entrepreneur what can i do and i said yeah let me be exposed to as many different problems as possible to really see the world and learn as early as possible. And consulting is amazing for that because every three, four months we change subjects, change industry, change country and so on. So I've got plenty of exposure through consulting. And before that, to go into consulting, you need to do the best studies you could. And I was at the time I had that thinking, I was uh, in my small town in Aix-en-Provence in southern France and I was studying law because I was like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and, and, and then from that day on, I said, yeah, okay, now let's try and do that. So I went to HEC, which is a business school and then I went to BCG and then whatever and whatever and whatever it's been driving me for for quite a while uh, so that was the um, that was the story yeah that's awesome and then so how how long did it take from 
the idea of I'm going to do this. I'm, there's no, I don't mind the risks. I'm going to, I'm going to do something. Um, how long was it for you from that transition of saying, there, there's my idea uh, and clicking that button as it were to write, I'm out of here and this is what I'm doing. What was that time scale? Was it, was it a short one or was it something that you kind of thought about over an extended period of time, making sure that you had coming back to your point for what you want to do enough in the bank to keep you going? Cause this is something that a lot of entrepreneurs do say, well, I've got, I think I've got enough and it's never enough. Uh, or was it just one of those things? I'm just doing it. Here we go. Um, the, the, a few things. One, I always wanted to start a business. It's It's been that project for a while. Uh, my wife as well is an entrepreneur. So we had that mindset when we were students together. We were looking at projects when it was, you know, a very early career. We're looking at things together and, and so on. So it was always on the back of my mind. Um, one of the things we made attention to was not to uh, spend too much because when you're in a, in, a, in a job where you make a lot of money, the risk is you start spending a lot and, and burn a lot of cash. It's not because you want to make savings or because you want to keep your money. It's just because you don't want to get in the habit that you need to spend a lot every month. And therefore, it makes it impossible to, to start a business. So we're always quite cautious and reasonable on that on that front um, on the other front uh, you know my uh, when when I moved to Morocco with BCG had that secure job so my wife started looking entrepreneurial projects after a year she's income was something that was super motivating for her so she took a job though it was the good timing for me and I think it's not starting a business is not you know today I'm an entrepreneur yesterday I had a job so the way it started was quite funny so I started having that idea uh, of starting info manual to get to to what it is and um and i wanted to understand you know if it could work so the first thing i did was i started calling guys just to see if what i was thinking of building could be relevant to us and there was very positive response and and it was you know, they told me, you know, if you start it, it's very likely we become your clients. So that was one element of it. So making promises and, you know, the guys are liking what you promised. And by the way, I promised I was still an employee at BCG. I was doing quite okay and so on. And, and I started speaking to people at BCG, whether they wanted to potentially become clients. And it was interesting to see they were very open to the idea. <laughs> and obviously I spoke to other people. On the other front, you need to see if you could deliver on the, on the promise you were making. Um, I'll get to that, but InfoMind is a research company. I'm not, a, I mean, we do a lot of research, we do other things now, but I'm not a researcher. So I had to find people. So <clears throat> one thing I did, I was still employed at BCG was I, message the uh, career services of the best business school in Morocco. And I said, give me the list of your alumni for the last three years. And I emailed probably 200 people, said, I'm starting a business. I want to interview you. And I actually interviewed people. Now I think there's prescription of 10 years, but I was actually in the BCG office <laughs> having tons of people coming by. And I was making interviews with these guys just to assess whether I could deliver. And because there was this matching of, yes, I can make promises that appeal to people on the other hand, have confidence that I can make it work. Mm-hmm. Then I was like, yeah, let's do it. So it was not like one day to the other. It was like building and and... Before I, I realized it, I had a business running and it was time for me to move on. Right. Okay. So did you actually set it up and were still employed, as it were, after doing all of that research and, and so forth? Were you still in both camps, as it were? There wasn't a clear cutoff until it was already up and, and running and, and working. 
I would say in the share of mine and this, the time I started spending maybe 10, 20% of my, of my time on this project, mostly out of working hours. Um, mm-hmm. The legal entity, I probably set it up like 10 days after I stopped my job at BCG. Uh, so it, it didn't have a conflict in that regard, but it was very quick because I was very clear uh, about what I wanted to do. Um, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's, yeah. that's the way it happened. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not trying to get, get into trouble from an ethical perspective of that because a lot of people do a side hustle, right? They 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 have an idea for for a, for a business and they start doing it in in conjunction with what they're doing from their employment until they get to that point where they think, you know what, I can make this work. This is working actually, and and then I can make that decision. But also the point that I kind of tried to make there is that a lot of people. They think that they've got an idea, and they 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 um and are and they procrastinate. But actually, it's a it's a process. It's a process of as you've just outlined research. First of all, is there a market for what I want to do, uh, and then and then making decisions based on that. Because I think there's a lot of people that create amazing products for nobody. They they they, they come up with this idea and they're like, oh, this is great. I love it. I would use this. And unfortunately. They're the only person that would, even when they go out to market and they put it, it's like, well, I've already got one of these things. And they're like, oh, I didn't know about that. Uh, and so it's really this idea of, well, and I'm trying to get this idea of balance is that you, I want to encourage as many people as possible to go for it. But you know, please. Yeah, two, two comments here. One is I learned about lean entrepreneurship after I started the business. And when I looked at the way I did it, it was that lean entrepreneurship is you get something that is an MVP, a minimum viable product. You essentially can see something, etc., And you test it to market as soon as possible. For me, I tested, it was nothing. The first thing I did, I, I, I created a slide. I didn't have a company, a name, no nothing. The slide was a blank template from PowerPoint about just the idea. And I was pitching that idea to people and I didn't have anything, but it was a mini MVP. And, and as, I, as I elaborated, the product or the service, I was testing it with clients and they they had power as to what it became. And so if they tell you, do that, I will buy it, then you do what it's much better than to work for two years in your garage doing something uh, before testing it to the market. So I I agree with you fully. Uh, The second point is around you know, can you do it as a side hustle? Uh, I think the likelihood of success um, in, in a project like that is also to put skin in the game. At some point, you need to take a leap of faith and say, I believe in it enough. I've seen a lot of people say, yeah, I have one, two hours, but then there's the, uh, the day job that gets you 99% of your revenue that tell, tells you, you know, you need to travel and you can't work on your project for three months. And then you do that. And then so many projects at some point, you need to have a trigger that makes you say, okay, this is going to be all my time. Uh, and I think it's important. And, and maybe it's a good test of whether you really want to do it or not. What level of risk are you willing to, uh, are you willing to take? Yeah, no, very good point. I think that that, that is a case, especially for those that are perhaps a little bit more risk averse to you or I, um, where in terms of going at it, where they look, oh, I'm, I'm really not keen on doing this. But I think it is it is definitely an indicator of, you know what, again, mitigated risk, understanding what it is that you're going, but then saying, right, I'm at that point, I'm 100% in, let's do it. And, and then you put everything that you've got into it and that's this uh, the common misconception for a lot of guys setting up and girls setting up businesses that they're like oh i want to become my own boss and work less and be on the beach and and do you know whatever it, it doesn't it, it's a it's a false expectation to begin with and yes you may get to that but you could be anywhere between five eight ten 
15 years of building, building, building to, to get to that point. But the, the big advantage I say to that is that you are in charge. You get to decide, you know what, today, I don't want to do it. I am going to go and just read a book. And uh, But you know that whilst you're reading that book at nine o'clock tonight, you're going to be like, right, all the stuff that I didn't do today, now I have to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, surprisingly, I mean, people would think that the level of effort you need to put in a project is linked to the size of the business. Oh, it's, it's not... It's not an existence for now. It's just an idea in my mind. So, yeah, I can take it easy. The thing is, I think the effort is linked to the momentum, the change in momentum that you want to create. So we're starting with zero momentum. You, you need to put a lot of effort to get to something very, very small. And then you have some momentum and you still need to put more energy to accelerate the momentum. Uh, I've never worked as hard in this business as before I had my first clients. Because I needed to get so many things ready, uh, the processes, the tools. Because when you start having clients, then you don't have that time to invest. Maybe one recommendation I would like to make to people that are starting businesses is always anticipate on the next step. So, okay, you're going to hire your first employee. Do you need a job description? Do you need an idea on the career they're going to go through? You need a briefing document about what is going to be that job. Yeah, no, you don't really need it. But if you don't do it now, when you have five employees that you're coaching day in, day out, you won't have the time to do that. So, or do you need mm -hmm. a CRM or do you need an ERP to be set up? And my thinking is always do it a little early before you actually need it because once you do, you won't have the time to do it and mm -hmm. just anticipate on the next step. And it's a good test of the level of ambition, uh, by the way. If you want to scale a business to hundreds of people, you need to have an applicant tracking system that allows you to manage hundreds and hundreds of CVs coming in. If you're not willing to invest in those type of things on the structure and the processes and so on, then it's going to be very difficult to scale because you're going to be late on everything and just firefighting instead of having the structure that allows you to scale. Yeah, it's very true. I think that's where a lot of uh, businesses end up is that firefighting scenario where they're like, oh, you know what, we're growing, it's good. But then, it's like, oh, but now we're kind of growing out of control because there isn't any structure or process or policy. You know, not, not to get too much hung up on that, but there needs to be those things in place because like you say, what, once you get your first client, your business plan almost goes out the window and that client helps you say, like you said, if you, if you make it yellow instead of green, then we're, we're good. If you make it do this instead of that, then we're signing up for the next 12 years. And you think, okay, well then that's, <laughs> we can do that. And if that's what you want, let me have a chat to a couple of other people. Oh, they want it too. They like it when it's green and it goes like that. So fine. We have to adapt to that with our, uh, our businesses. But I think a, a lot of people that I talk to end up with that issue with their ego getting stuck in the way where they, uh, they, well, it's my business and I've created this product or service because it does this. So I'm sure that there's those, uh, those um, consumers and customers out there that will, will want it. And I think that, you know, I know that Apple and Steve Jobs kind of had that approach to we'll make it this way and the people will like it and it worked. But those are those very, very rare unicorns where that, that happens for most of us. It's a case of, well, what is it that our audience needs from us? Because we might think it is X, but if they all want Y, then we need to get in the market of Y because <laughs> that's what they're going to transact with us over. So it's, uh, I think it's a very, very valid point. Um, at, at which point, I think, can you tell us a little bit more about this current venture, both the, both the one um, for Minio and, uh, and, and your new venture as well, but perhaps the one that's been running for a little bit longer. What is it and, and how did it evolve and, and how are you helping those businesses, not just in the UAE, but globally? 
Yeah, uh, thank you. So, so the first business is called Infomagno, uh, and we're in the industry of brainshoring. So, you don't don't look on on the internet. So it's a word that I invented. So you don't <laughs> to know. But basically, the, the concept is the following: when you do outsourcing, so the, the basic premise is a company cannot be good at everything. You are good at a few things. You were mentioning Apple a minute ago. Apple is amazing at product design, amazing at marketing and sales. They are crap at manufacturing. They have no idea how to build a computer. That's not their core business. So they outsourced it to Foxconn in China. And they're very happy with that. So for me, every company wants to do some things and, and, and not others. When it comes to services, you started outsourcing things that are really basic. Your call center, for example, or uh, uh, you started using BPO, your payroll is outsourced, or maybe your appointments is outsourced, whatever. And then starting emerging an industry which they called KPO for knowledge process outsourcing, where you're starting getting into services that have more value add, like data research or research for patents or legal or writing contracts and so on. And I like this idea that, you know, you have 8 billion brains in the world. They're not all in London, in Dubai, in New York. They are everywhere. Mm -hmm. As long as you train people, they can work from where they are. And you can make cost arbitrage, but more than cost arbitrage, really fine talent that you would not, would not be able to tap into otherwise. And the problem with KPO, it's been developed mostly from India. Um, and, and I was using them as BCG. And my partner, Hamza, who was at McKinsey at the time, was also using this type of services. And and we were frustrated with the quality of service because it was very much on, you know, I'm going to execute. Send me an email anyways with six, seven hours of time difference. We can't talk on the phone. Send me an email. It's going to be super clear. I'm going to do whatever you tell me. I'm going to send it back to you. But when you want to do things that are complex, that doesn't work. You need to explain. You know, if you had told me, uh, Martin, we're going to do a podcast, send me an email uh, and I'm going to learn everything. I mean, that, that dialogue would not have been very rich, right? It's because mm -hmm. we're talking together that it's much better. So you need to do those services from near show locations where you can talk to the people. You need to select people based on the critical thinking they have. And brainshoring is essentially the outsourcing of tasks that require critical thinking, close communication to the, to the client. Um, today, we do three things. We do data research. So um, I want to understand the strategy of PepsiCo in Africa. I want to size the market uh, of, I don't know, uh, mini computers in, in Zimbabwe. I want to whatever. So essentially a, a service where you get people to provide you data to make better decisions. And, you know, data is everywhere. You need more data to make better decisions. Very few people are good with that. Uh, a second service that we have is, is around graphic design. So you can have the best mm -hmm. insights, the best thinking, if you can't represent it in a way mm -hmm. that people understand it, that it connects to, it doesn't make sense. So I love Excel, but, you know, it's not the best way to communicate. And when I was a consultant, I'd spent nights and nights on PowerPoint moving boxes to results that were really subpar. I don't have any sense of aesthetics or anything. I was wasting a lot of time. And, you know, you would have design artists that would take your slides. You say, okay, this is an impression I want to give to people. This is going to be a context with 200 people in a room. I want it to be super dynamic, et cetera. They can really advise on how you, you make things uh, work. We have another service, which is a little more opportunistic at this stage, which is uh, in translation uh, in the region, you know, translating from Arabic to English uh, and, and the other way around is a nightmare. Uh, yeah. So we have a team of 15 people doing that. And we're about to launch a service in a, in a few months of, about data analytics, where you know companies create large sets of data, but they can't make sense of it. It's too big. They don't have the capabilities to, to do that. And then the idea for us 
say, we're going to do data research, then data analysis, then data visualization. So it's a whole cycle around how data can help you, uh, you know, improve your business and be more efficient. So that's yeah. for my new, that's the services. Um, in terms of people, we are reaching 200 people now. Um, we, we had uh, 38 in the last six weeks, so it's really accelerating. And we will end the year at north of 250, probably. Two main offices in Morocco, where we started, uh, where we have 80 people, I think. In Egypt, we're a little north of 90. Uh, we just opened an office in Mexico um, to serve yeah. the Americas. Um, so now we're opening a new market with, with our presence in Mexico. Uh, and we also have an office in Dubai, where it's mostly business development and a holding company in Spain. So that's that's about us. <laughs> Truly global organization already from, from that side of things. Um, just to come back to one point there and that you've got these offices, you're servicing different markets. What was the attraction specifically of the UAE, Dubai, uh, to, to sort of base yourself from, from the business development side of things and have a, a sort of a head quarters, if you like to call it that, or base yourself there out of all of those? Because you obviously you are, you're, you're servicing parts of uh, the Levant, you're servicing South America now. I saw the posts on LinkedIn about the Mexico office and, and the, that growth. What was it about the UAE that he saw said, you know what, I think this would be a good position for us to be? Yeah, that's a great question. So we started initially only in Morocco, and then we wanted to open in Egypt. Uh, Morocco is a great hub for servicing uh, Europe and a large part of Africa. And to, to service the Middle East, Egypt was by far the best location. Everybody goes to Lebanon and Jordan, but Egypt is, is much better. So when you start having a multinational company, even though we were probably 20 people at the time we opened that office, you need to have a, a legal entity to consolidate all that. And the legal entity, you want it to be in a jurisdiction where the law is strong enough, where you have double taxation agreements, uh, where you can transfer money easily from a country to the other and so on. And when you take the 54 countries in Africa and you look at the Middle East, because we were starting from that region, you don't have many locations that are that are very good. And, and, and the UAE stood out very easily uh, from the crowd here. And as it happens, we did a study a few times, a few editions, looking at where decision-making centers were for companies when it came to Middle East and Africa. And like 60% of the whole of the decision makers when it comes to Middle East and Africa are in Dubai. So for me, it was much less travel to be here, to be close to my clients. It was a great location uh, and, and, and that, that, made, uh, that made the deal. And besides, from a personal perspective, my wife is half British, wanted our children to speak English. It's a great location to speak English. It is safe. Uh, quality of life is not bad. So there's plenty of things that brought us here and there's not a second, uh, a second I regret this, this choice. Yeah, no, fantastic. It's one of those places that has a, a huge attraction. I think it has this amazing energy around entrepreneurialism as well in terms of uh, um, the, the ability to do something and make a difference and establish yourself uh, on the ground. It's always interesting, you know, when your, your other half is a um, is also in that same in industry from an entrepreneurial perspective in terms of just the ideas bouncing around. And, and I think that it, what I found actually in Dubai is that it's also a lot easier to connect with people, um, that people People tend to be more open to having those conversations. Networking is uh, is a pastime, you know, in, in Dubai that you, you're constantly doing those things, um, and that it makes it. I don't want to say easier, but it just makes it seem as if the opportunity to talk to somebody that would actually really benefit your business is there and that they're more willing to open that door as well, as opposed to, let's say, back in Europe and when I started my career with Microsoft and, and, and knocking on doors from that side of things, it's difficult to get through to decision makers and get past the gatekeepers and so forth. Whereas here, it seems like it's a lot more geared towards, you know what, well, I want to talk to you because maybe there is something that you're 
you, your company can do for my company or vice versa. And, and I, I think I've really enjoyed that kind of energy in, in Dubai and the UAE for, for sure. Um, but when it comes to the um, the, the, the future of of, 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 the, of these companies, so let's jump sort of switch gears again because I did want to get to this idea of the the air quotes serial entrepreneur. You've built this business which is growing and expanding and getting uh, bigger already, and then you suddenly say, you know what? I think I'm going to start a new one. So can you tell us a little bit about that? other business that you've re recently launched and, and why it's come about? Is there a link with the first one or is this just something that, you know what, I'm risk, I don't have any, I'm a risk averse, I'm going for it. <laughs> I've just come up with a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, great, great question. Uh, so yeah, I mean, for mine is doing well, and the idea is uh, is now we have a team that is very strong, and I mean, it can scale. I'm still involved ninety percent of my time in uh, in Infomine, but we're growing um, north of forty percent this year, and and now it's it's you know the momentum that I was mentioning earlier is there, and we have a very very strong team to lead uh, to lead that business to, to on its growth path. You know, the other business is called Data Exchange, and I've thought about it. The day I started in Formanio, essentially, Formanio is a company that provides a service to find data to do, and, and in what we sell is time. It's a great business because it's a business that generates cash. We never get any funding. We never get a loan from the bank. We've been profitable first year and so on. It's a great business. But when you want to scale, you want to double the size of business, you double the number of employees. And doubling the number of employees is more and more challenging as you go because this year we're going to hire more than 100 people. And the year after, probably more than 150. It's it's difficult to get to find the right talent, to train all that all these people. By the way, it's an amazing thing to create jobs. That's That has been a blast to identify people and to see these people having a job, a career, enjoying what they do and learning. Okay, let me put that aside. There's another business model that works very well. It's to, to have an asset. And I'm convinced of the value of data and, and information um, mm -hmm. as an asset. You know, there is this saying, which is a little of bullshit, but it's, uh, you know, data is a new oil. It's not really oil, but data has value. Data helps you optimize a business. Um, and and there's data that is open out there, that is on the web, that is whatever. Uh, there's a lot of data that is produced by companies as, as a byproduct of the activity. Your car for you produce tons of data about your customers. You are in B2B, you produce tons of data and you don't do anything with it. And it's an asset that you have. If I want to be a little theoretical, today companies have, I would say, 2.5 assets they have. One is capital. So you have capital, you pay your shareholders, you have work, you pay your employees. Some are quite okay at intellectual property, patents, and brands, and so on. And for me, that, that other asset that nobody does anything with is the data. The data extract, generates zero value, and it's never going to be a priority for companies to extract value from that. Again, take that example of Carrefour. You do billions and billions with selling products. You have data. You can do a few millions on your data. It will never be a business priority. But if somebody came to you and said, you have that, you have that asset, don't do anything with it. I'm going to sell it for you on your behalf. Right. And I'm going to generate a few million. It's not revenue that I'm generating. It's profits because you have zero investment to be done. Then the business case is very different. On the other end, you have plenty of companies that are having issues to optimize their business. And they need that data. Let me take a simple example in the same line of thinking. You are Coke, okay? You have a sales force that's costing you a fortune and mm -hmm. you need to incentivize these people. Today, the way you do it, you give bonuses based on growth. You've grown the business. So 
in 2020, nobody did a good job because the market crashed. In 2021, everyone did a good job. I mean, you know that it's it's not right. A good salesman is the one that wins market share, that wins over competition. So how do you know that you beat Pepsi with Carrefour? Only Carrefour knows. You don't. Mm. So if Carrefour were to provide the data about your market share, shop by shop, Pepsi versus Coke, so that you can use that to incentivize your salespeople, you can extract a lot of value, keep the best people, give the right incentives. And you need somebody to do that. Why is it not happening today? Because all these companies that have data, all these companies that need data, if everyone needs to speak to everyone, all every company needs to speak to every company, it creates a web of connection that is massive. Suppose you have a company in the middle of that that deals with Carrefour and with Etisalat and with all these guys, and also with the guys, instead of having N times N relationship, you have N plus N relationship. It's a super simple model to create that exchange place. That's why we call the business data exchange. It's an exchange platform for data. So initially, you can just be an exchange, a trader of data. But then what is interesting is when you start getting multiple sources of information, you put that source, these sources together and they're way more rich when you put them together. Let's again take that example the data of Carrefour is useful to Pepsi, but what or to Pepsi or Coke? But it's more interesting to also have the data of Panda and 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 of all the other retail chains that creates much more value. And only data exchange can make the aggregation and and sell it to others. And then you could also do work on the data instead of having massive sets of data, sell dashboards and others. So that's what we are doing. We are an exchange platform for data to help optimize businesses. And the asset is the data. It's not the work that we do on the data. Right. That's amazing. I think that's, to your point at the beginning, I, I do some work uh, with an initiative I run called Beat the Cyberbully. And I talk to students about uh, staying safer in the online world and uh, some of the things that mums and dads need to be aware of. And one of the things that I say in all of my presentations that one of the most valuable resources on the planet right now is data. It's not Bitcoin and it's not Ethereum and it's not gold and silver. It's actually data. And so many people are giving their personal data away. But I think that's a brilliant business idea, model that you've come up with, because to interrogate the data, as you said, there is so much available information that is just not used and uh, it's there. And uh, so I think that, um, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's going to be a super successful business because the more and more that these organizations get into the digital world, they start to realize how valuable the data is and also perhaps just become aware of how much data is actually available to them aside from what's happening on their e-commerce platform and how many sales have gone on and all of this kind of stuff, but all of the other data that actually could help, as you said, incentivize sales forces, optimize processes, all of these kind of things that are going to become, I would say essential. They should be essential already, but they're going to become essential as we move more and more into this digital world where we are transacting uh, in, in the digital space more as people, but also as businesses. And, and every single one of those transactions, there's data attached to the metadata that can be used. And uh, we, we had this idea a little while ago about uh, um, cleaning up your online reputation as one of our business ideas. And then Facebook got hacked by uh, Cambridge Analytica. And so that they shut down all their libraries and we, we lost that opportunity. But the idea still remains in terms of the ability to actually um, use your data and, and tailor that data. And as a business to then say, because I think a lot of people still don't understand how you know, why is Google a multi-billion dollar organization, the Facebooks, the Snapchats, the Instagrams and all this? 
it's data. It's all the data that they have on us because of where we go and what we do on their platforms and what we show them that we like. Taking that and actually doing something with it, I think is is it's, it's essential, it's valuable. But I think the, the real thing that you've identified there is that a lot of companies don't know how to do it. And so if somebody comes to them and says, hey, here's how we can do it for you, there's, I think, a lot of light bulbs going on. And, and maybe that has been the case. Has that been the case in terms of the, the launch and, and the, the pitching to these kind of organizations? Have they seen the value pretty pretty quickly or are you still on that slow burn of re-education? So there is a lot of education uh, uh, going on. Let me just uh, step back on, on what you were just sharing. It's very interesting. Facebook, Google, etc. their business is based on a single promise that they can measure the, the return investment on advertising. Mm. The, the, you advertise on very targeted people and you can measure without you change their behavior. That's, and, and, and you're right, it's because they master the data. Facebook is not a social network. Facebook is a data company and then being able to do that very well. And many other companies have not. Have not because it's not their priority because they see data not as a core business, but as a side product you know it's like you dig a mine and then you have a pile of sand somewhere and you just put it there you don't know what to do with it um, so yes there's a lot of education going on but all our clients because now we're starting having clients are saying the exact same thing i have that data i know that there is value i have no idea how to monetize it and i've been trying i set up a team of five they've been working for a year they didn't come up with everything with anything and that's that's based on the fundamental reasons I explained. It's never going to core business. Second, the value of the data, if you invest in it, it's going to be revenue and you look at the cost you put against it. It's never going to be more core than your core business. Um, so if you outsource it, it's much better. And also this, value, this data has much less value. It's just your data. If you aggregate this data with other sources of data, the data of other companies, there's much more value. So it's, it's very obvious to me that it doesn't make sense that companies take care of the monetization of their data themselves. It's not going to work from a structural perspective. It's not even the question of, do you have the skills, the willingness to do it? From a structure, it cannot work. So I really think a business like data exchange can make that business uh, exist. And for me, that's a zero to one business. In for my new, for me, it's an incremental business. We do services better than others. And that's why we're growing much faster than competition because we figure this brain shoring logic, this critical thinking element with data exchange is a zero to one, uh, according to the Peter Thiel book. It's, it's, yeah. it's inventing a new business model. It's, it, it is making things happen or making things possible that were not possible before. That's why I'm really um, very optimistic for, for the business and speaking up nicely. It takes time to educate on one end, the provider of the data, the clients of the data, but once you do it, then you, know, you get an acceleration phenomenon. So we have Three ways of doing that uh, uh, data monetization. I won't go into details, but there's an idea that you could syndicate data. So people in the same industry will share with you all their own data. You will aggregate, sanitize, and redistribute so people have a much better view on their own uh, market and so on. There's another one, which is a linear model, where you essentially get the data from A, you sell it to B, and yet there's another set of uh, approach where you, have, you create a data set based on a need. You just do a customer survey, you web scrape, whatever, you create a data set that you're going to sell. What is interesting at this stage is we have our first three contracts on each of these businesses. And to 
almost a year to get to these first contracts. But what I'm very confident about is that it's going to be exponential. You get the first contract takes you a year. The second would take you three months. The third would take you two months. And then you can accelerate. And what is interesting is... Um, you can start on a niche. Okay, I'm going to cover the uh, soda market for the UAE using the data of of, uh, of Carrefour. But then you go category by category, and you can expand that exponentially. And then you go to other geographies. And what is interesting is really you can you can you know um, accelerate the growth in an, an exponential manner in in a business like this. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, the, the momentum that you mentioned earlier just comes much, much quicker and, and, and you can leverage it much, much faster from that side of things. So, which is always a positive thing when you're building a business, if you can get that momentum moving quickly, um, I think you, you can make a, make a huge difference. And like I said, I think that the idea of that, and it, it will be successful based on what's happening now in, in the market, the realization of the value of data. I think it's something from a digital marketing perspective we've been talking about for the last decade, just in terms of how much data is available available to your business through your website and through your, your, your digital real estate and how businesses still in 2022 are like, oh, I didn't realize that. Or they don't have any analytics being collected around that. And you're thinking, how much are you missing as a business? Just from that tiny little bit. And then you take it to the scale that you're doing it and you can just see the massive, massive opportunity. Um, so I think that that will be- The only a, thing I want to address here is- yeah. Go ahead. Go the only thing I want to address is like expectations management. With, so data is gold. No, it's not gold. For now, it's lead. And it will take time to make it mm. into gold. It could eventually become gold. So if, the, if people that have data say, I want to make $100 million of the data next year, this is not going to happen. It's mm. a new area. It will take time. I don't know. Electric cars, you know, Tesla started with a roadster. They were selling 100 cars a year, not even. Yeah. And it took time for the market to mature so that it could become mass adoption. I think for the data, it's the same. So if companies are patient, are willing to explore, to learn on that new business model, to trust a supplier or partner like Data Exchange, then they can extract massive value, but it's not tomorrow. It might be the day after tomorrow, the day even after. And that's something we have a hard time educating the people we talk to. They say, oh, it has massive value. I'm sure of it. For now, it brings zero to me. And if you don't promise it's going to bring 100 million, I'm not interested. And mm. this is not how it works. It's incremental yeah. and it's not like day and night uh, immediately. Yeah, no, understood. And a very good point to make because I think that uh, that's also a, uh, a misperception from a lot of organizations from anything from a data or analytics or digital perspective is that it's click your fingers, done. It will it will change and, and it will be, oh, yeah, we've, we've decided to implement this. So tomorrow, everything will be fine from a business perspective. It's not that case. It, it is something that's going to take time and it needs needs that investment of time to, to make that happen. Now, moving from the, the businesses that you're involved with, that you've got, you've got two businesses on the go, you're a, a husband, you're a father of three. How do you manage the time? Um, I'll optimize. Uh, probably from consulting, I got the habit of optimizing everything. So typically when I chose the physical office we have in Dubai, I chose an office that was eight minutes away from home on an electric scooter. Right. So literally from closing the door to being in front of my computer, it is 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, I don't need to park a car because it's an electric scooter and so on. Uh, 
on the way, I'm listening to a podcast because I need to educate myself. Um, the school of my children is 15 meters from home. And so it's, it's the, the avoidance of time wastage. That is, that is my, my key. I'm trying to be really optimizing things so I can actually decide on how I spend my time. I spend, I, I'm quite active in business and probably people working with me said, would tell you that I work a lot, but I, I don't really, I don't, I don't waste time, but I spend hours every day with my kids. So that's really about the avoidance of downtime. Uh, and, and, and that's what I'm trying to, uh, to, to do. Um, yeah. And it works okay. And this, maybe the second point is to delegate more and more uh, and to say, to realize as an entrepreneur, you feel that the world is going to crash if you're not here. And somehow when you're not here, it's the, the, the planet still turns. Uh, you have people in your team that you leave them space. They take that space. They don't need you. So one illustration of that is uh, I was doing just myself roughly 60% of the sales of the company, of the business development last year. My partner Hamza was doing almost 40%, 35-40%. And in Q4 last year, we decided to go to zero, both of us. Zero. So, and you don't need to do these calls to clients. You don't need to proactively reach out and so on. Yeah. You save so much time. And what it happens is that the business development team we had uh, created is thriving. They have much more space to, to work and so on. So disappearing and leaving space to others is, is a great way that you can, uh, you can save time and, and, and force yourself into delegating. Yeah, no, that is a brilliant uh, point because I think it's very difficult for a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners or solopreneurs to get out of their own way because, like you said, the, the world's going to stop turning. Actually, it turns just fine. And given those people that you spent so much time and effort to recruit in the first place, giving them the ability to do the job that you brought them on to do, they can thrive. Uh, but it, but it does take a certain amount of, um, I think, self-awareness to be able to, to, to extricate yourself from that and say, you know what, it's that ego again. It's like, well, if I'm not here, then the whole thing's going to collapse. But actually, that's not the, the case. And if you are truly building a business, that's the whole ethos behind it. Like, how do I build this so that I can take myself out of this and voila, <laughs> it's still going and growing and I don't have to be in it all day, every day. Something that I'm not very good at, I'm struggling with uh, myself. So it's great to hear that that's something that you proactively do. I love the optimization side of things as well in terms of saying, you know what, 10 minutes door to door, 15 meters to the school, all of these things that people say, well, that's, you know, that, that's a small thing. Yeah, but every one of these small things adds up to more time back to you that you can then proactively decide, you know what, I'm doing this because I didn't spend half an hour driving. I did spend half an hour trying to find flipping parking space and I'm actually just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So I think that those are, those are really, really cool points just as something from a, a personal perspective, because I know a lot of the people that listen in they, they're about to start their journey. They're on their journey. Something that a lot of our guests, uh, what I like to ask a lot of our guests is just about resources. So from Martin's perspective, is there something or a couple of things that you would recommend to people out there that are thinking about the entrepreneurial journey, they're starting the entrepreneurial journey, anything really that you would say, you know what, if you do nothing else, do this or use this or speak to this person, or is there a huge list? Either way, you go, go, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I take. I could take two hours on this, so let me let me try. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I think one thing is take care of yourself. Is mm. I mean, entrepreneurship is a marathon. It's a long thing. It's not a. So if you burn yourself, you're not 
doing good for your business, for yourself, mm -hmm. etc. So there's small routines. I think we're all like good at routine. We are, I don't know, we are animals after all. And we doing the same thing every day, like waking up, exercising a little. A stupid thing I do, I swim 10 minutes a day. 10, right. not, I'm not selling myself tigers that are impossible. 10 minutes a day. Why? Because it gets me started. And I'm not stealing that time from my business. I'm not stealing from my family. It just makes me a better husband, a better father, and a better entrepreneur to take care of myself. And I think it's really, uh, really important uh, to, to do. And it could be sports. It could be just reasonably reasonable alcohol intake. It could be these type of things. Um, second is uh, don't forget about learning. Uh, because when you're an entrepreneur, you, you're like, okay, I'm supposed to know everything. People come to me for answers, but the truth is you're not better because you have the status of an entrepreneur. So how do you learn? Um, it's, it's really important. So typically keeping on reading things that are interesting. And what I've discovered in the last two years is podcast listening, again, to that optimization thing. You know, I'm, I only listen to podcasts when I don't do anything else. So when I drop my son to the nursery on my scooter in the morning, the way back, I'm alone. So I'm putting the headphones and I'm listening for 10 minutes. And, and same for a lot of things when I'm helping out in the house and I'm, you know, uh, passing the Hoover, it's 10 minutes of my time. You're just hoovering is not super exciting. I'm listening to podcasts and I, I discovered that I could learn three hours per week on average of time that was just hidden that I didn't know existed. So mm -hmm. I think keeping time for learning is, is, uh, is, is really, uh, is really essential. So that's two among 125 advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And I think those are really, really good points. The podcast thing I'm a big fan of, not just because we do these, but I, I do the same two things in the morning. I wake up at five 30, I go to the gym. It's my time to do my exercise. And when I'm in the gym, I'm listening to podcasts to learn. And then I come back and I'm ready to take the kids to school and and, uh, and the day and then get to work. And uh, I think that it's, uh, you're so right. Routine is so important as much as people say, oh, it's, I don't want to, it helps us. We are designed that way. Uh, and I think that it's a super, super thing to, um, to, to end on there in terms of this ability to take care of yourself. Because I, I think it's interesting. A lot more of my guests are, are talking about that now. It used to be always about the, the, the mentor and the books and this, that, and the other. And now I've just seen this transition over the, the last, I guess, 12 months and more and more people aware that, taking care of yourself is so important because as you rightly said, Martin, if you're not good, then you're no good to others. And, uh, and you've got people, your family, you've got employees, you've got a business that are looking to you to, 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 to help. And if you're not taking care of yourself, it's very difficult. And so I think those are, those are great points. And uh, it just remains for me to say thank you, Martin. I really appreciate you taking the time because you're obviously extremely busy uh, with everything that's going on. Really appreciate you uh, sharing your insights, sharing your experience, and uh, just a big thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Barry. It was a pleasure. Thanks again. And to everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. As always, if there's anybody that you would like us to speak with, drop us a line, wishlist at swanglinglees.rocks, and we will see you on the next one. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Swanglinglees with your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Endermo. We'll catch you next time.